Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Broken Oars podcast. And Aaron, what do we have for our listener today? Well, what we have for our listener today, Dr. Hines, Lou, an old friend, old buddy, old crewmate, is the rare and welcome sight of the Geordie sidekick introducing a little bit of the content at the top of the program. We have a fantastic episode for you today. And yes, we do say that every time. We have been blessed with amazing interviewees in Di Binley and Terence and Pete, who have all smashed it out of the park in recent weeks. They've put us to shame. But this may be our crowning glory. This may be the podcast where we cross the line in a blaze of lactate and then have to retire immediately after because there are no more worlds for us to conquer. This podcast, ladies and gentlemen, could be our Redgrave's last stand. I shall obviously play the part of the medically old and challenged and creaky one. And um, I'm thinking of playing the part of the indolent public schoolboy with a strong back and large lungs who will never actually be able to earn enough money to send his kids back to his alma mater. But, you know, it, it seems to suit me quite well, frankly. It is, it is not so much casting against type as casting very much to type. But before we get ahead of ourselves and say that this will be our crowning glory, let's not forget that this is us, so it could also be terrible as well. Let's focus on the positives in our Redgrave's last stand attempt here. No one will be coming past us on this podcast, largely because it's a podcast and there are no Italians in the room while we're recording it. None whatsoever. Indeed. In this podcast, the, the, the Italians are all indeed in quarantine. In this podcast, we, Lewin and I, are going to discuss our Fantasy Rowing 8 lineup. Who would we put in a Fantasy Rowing 8? Now, because this is us, this started as Lewin and I discussing the best 8 that we'd ever rowed in. It turned out to be a really short conversation because, as luck would have it, given the choice, neither of us would put us in that boat. And, and I have this really weird thing that I actually, I like eight to row in, but I don't like all the things that go with eight. I actually start feeling very, very socially awkward in a crew that big. I get, I'm much more comfortable with Cox Falls. Just let me get this straight then, Dr. Hines. Um, you're saying essentially that you, you like to row in an eight, but you don't like all of the things that go along with rowing in an eight, like other people, your crewmates, training with them. I learned to row in Cox Tours and it just seems a very, very natural arrangement. Like four big, rather sarcastic, sometimes taciturn blokes, a shouty little blonde in the stern saying, you know, (laughs) pull harder essentially and don't row so crap. Um, That was mainly directed at me because I was the novice and these guys have been rowing for three years. It was only a very, very long time in my rowing career that I realized, you know, that all that send and run that you get on the boat, that isn't really there in a Cox 4. And, and you sort of, you do miss that. In which case, as, as Loon and I have voted ourselves out of our representative um, eight that we have rowed in that we'd like to row in again, in other words, we're not good enough for our own eight, can I join you in your Cox 4 or do I need to pull a particular time? Bear in mind that I only have no kidneys. At the moment, it would be a very, very open Cox 4. It would be going to Henley Masters in C or D and mainly be going there for, like, beer and pims. It's part of the magic. And and, and, and as a man with no kidneys, it, it'll be something that I'll watch you do with a huge amount of... <laughs> 
jealousy and nostalgia. So having voted ourselves out of our own representative eight, our discussion shifted very quickly to what a representative eight of the best rows of all time would actually look like. Now, by the best rows of all time, we mean, of course, British rowers. Now, just to be clear about this, we haven't decided this because we're jingoistic Brexiteers, although it should be noted that we invented the modern sport of rowing, codifying and ratifying it as a sport for gentlemen in the Victorian era that lingers about its organisation and administration today. It should also be noted that like every other modern sport that we invented in that period and then gave to the world, the rest of the world turned out to be rather better at it than us for most of the 20th century. Point of order, Dr Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, ever since its inception as an uh, Olympic sport, it's been run by the French, so they probably cheated. Fair point. Can't argue with that. This was a fruitful line of inquiry, a representative eight of the best rowers of all time. Would Pinson beat out or beat on Andy Trigg Hodge? Would there be a place for Tim Foster? Would Pete Reed beat James Cracknell, would it be about the head? We're saying yes, James Cracknell, a man for whom no James Cracknells are left behind, would probably say no because he'd back himself. What about the female representation? Vicky Thornley, Kath Granger, these are names to conjure with and they are probably going to beat some of the guys out. Zoe de Toledo is also a name to conjure with, as is Phelan Groovy Hill for the position of Coxswain. Now, you see, the thing is, we then, we then took this a little bit further because... Fundamentally, we are nerds. And when we decided what a truly representative fantasy eight would look like, we started to really think about fantasy. This was the important thing. So we wanted to think about who would win a seat race between Matthew Pinson and Conan the Barbarian. Would Merida from the classic Disney Pixar film, Brave, come out on top against Kath Granger? And you know, would her value as the ginger in the boat outweigh Kath's five Olympic medals? And how would James Cracknell's berserker intensity fare against the true berserker slaying the Avenger in a fight for the meat wagon spot? That's right. We very quickly moved from discussing our own rowing careers to discussing everybody else's rowing careers to getting down to real fantasy, the proper made-up fictional stuff with elves and witches and goblins and short asses with magical rings poncing around the place like they own it. We are, of course, talking about the fantasy of Tolkien, of Barry, of Graham, of Carol, of Brooks, of Heinlein, of Garner, of Robert E. Howard and Pratchett et al., which is what we say in Geordie when we had all of our tea E Lake, I bet I'll be tea, man. And, uh, and if we're talking about fantasy authors who've had an enormous impact on uh, the lives of Geordies at the moment, we could discuss Ferguson, Witty, and Balance et al. Um, but <laughs> never mind about made up statistics. Well, why are we doing this? Uh, now, because this is actually quite a complicated exercise. We know that you can't just put the fastest rowers from any selection of oarsmen and put them together in a crew and expect to make a cohesive whole. One thinks of Cracknell and Pinsent in the pair. And we also need to think about the race that we're racing because what works for Head of the River and established Jackson might not work for regattas that matter for Henley qualifying. Now, but what is, the, what is the main reason that we're doing this? Well, the main reason that we're doing this, Dr. Hines, Lewin, old friend, old buddy, old crewmate, is because, let's face it, rowing itself is a quest. 
It is a quest on every level. It is a quest for the perfect stroke. It is a quest for the perfect catch, the perfect finish, the perfect float and the perfect send of the boat. It is the quest for the perfect paddle, the quest for the perfect outing, the perfect piece, the perfect race. It is the quest to meet personal goals and crew goals. On a larger level, it is a quest. It is a quest to win a pot, a quest to break the top 100 at head of the river race, the top 50, the top 20, and above all in the United Kingdom, as we still currently just about are, it is an epic quest every season to make it to Henley Royal Regatta. In September, tens of thousands start with hope in their hearts. The brutality of the season, of the training, of this racing, sees brave souls falling by the wayside with every passing week until on the first Wednesday, a mere 300 or so boats line up at the start line of Henley Royal Regatta. And 150 of which just get sent home the same day. Have we ever been in that situation, Aaron? I can't, I can't remember. It's so long it's, ago. It's so long. So it's long so long ago. ago. I, I remember our Henley careers as being glorious and glittering and royalty came up to us afterwards and said they've, they, they'd never seen neater feathering. I, I don't think we were ever cannon fodder for the likes of Green Lake. A bunch um, of wannabe 18-year-old American internationals who probably should have been in like the ladies' plate, but never mind. But yes. Rowing is a quest. This is an epic year-long quest. And if we're talking about epic quests, we're talking fantasy. And we are talking about fantasy rowing eight debate. But before before this, we do have we do have some housekeeping. And we do indeed. Housekeeping. It concerns injuries, but not Dr. Jackson's injuries. It concerns my injuries. And I, I can see my partner in pod cheering at the happiness of not being injured or ill or in hospital this time. No, I was determined to row at Runcorn in the rain one last time. So I strained my knee training for their online 500 meter sprint regatta. Now, um, given that previously we discussed that no member of the GB squad should be allowed to actually pick up their Olympic medals and hold them until they've actually made the journey to the far wild northwest of England to race Runcorn Head in the Rain, we thought this could be an easy out for members of the GB squad. And under our regulations, they would actually just have to log on online, pay their three quid to Runcorn, bash out an erg for 76 seconds, and we personally at Broken Horse Podcast will let them keep their medals because we're... we're going to give be given responsibility for this but yes um runcorn have actually got a really quite well-functioning piece of software that works for this it lets you race as a crew and you get an average erg time you can race individuals you can have masters categories which are handicapped masters categories you can have weight categories that are all handicapped and genuinely you can have um people who are 30 kilos lighter than me going a hell of a lot faster than me as um as we found out on the test event which is where i sprained my knee and wasn't actually able to do the real race but that was it aaron do you have any ha- housekeeping for us you, i think you do you've got some rather controversial housekeeping haven't you yes um i would like and i realize that this this will fly in the face of public opinion but i would like the broken oars podcast to be the podcast that finally welcomes Lance Armstrong back into polite society. 
And here is why. If you've listened to our Jürgen Gate, The Trolls and the Two Billy Goats Gruff episode, you will know that we very, very firmly come down on the side of athlete welfare. We do not condone doping and we do not condone coaches who dope. We argued that Jürgen may well be the exception that proved the rule as a coach who was who was part of a coercive and brutal um, system of doping in East Germany. When he came out to coach in England first with Leander and then with the British squad, he seemed to make damn sure that his athletes were clean. Uh, and if it hadn't been for the idiotic behavior of two young people from the Headington Road Young Offenders Institute, British rowing would be a clean sport. Here's why I think that Lance should be reintegrated into polite society. I think Lance is pure, unrepentant, I would do it all again because everybody else was doing it and I wanted to win, is refreshing to the Canton hypocrisy that otherwise surrounds sport. That, that's, that's, a, that's a controversial claim. We, I'm with you on it because I, I too have been watching Lance uh, documentary and despite the warning at the beginning of it that Lance was almost certainly trying to manipulate everybody involved in the documentary, including the people watching, I do find him a magnetic and very interesting character. So if you're listening, Lance, we would love to have you on as long as you pass the piss test when you get in touch. If you are playing the uh, now traditional Thames Trace and Broken Oars drinking game for people who have been listening for more than four weeks, um, what are the keywords? Your keywords for this episode are Frodo, Undoing, and Slain or Slane the, the Avenger. Slonya. Slonya. Slonya the Avenger, I repeat. Frodo. <laughs> I'm doing, and I'm just going to go back to what I know, which is slain the Avenger, because it sounds much sounds more meaty sense. and barbaric. Yes. It's, am I the only one when I, when I hear that, and obviously I, I, ha, I have rampant dyslexia and a very weird relationship with words, but when, when I, I see the name Frodo, I, do you, am I the only person here who, I'm, well, actually I am, who wants to pick up an imaginary telephone and go, yes, Frodo with a hobo, by the Lido with a dildo. Is that just me or, or, or not? Uh, literally, as as another dyslexic, that is that is actually just you. Um, I mean, okay. and, and I think this just goes to show that that we dyslexics we don't actually form cabals. This is accidental. It's not there, there isn't a special dyslexic handshake. We don't all go to like a club in Mayfair in London. It's like come up with like dyslexic ideas we, we, we're just not very good at reading quickly honestly yeah. we don't hang out together because we, we 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 make the flyers up and hand them out to other dyslexics but they can't read them so nobody turns up but enough about dyslexia let's get on with the fantasy yes. eight i just okay. just to say before we get on with the fantasy i just like the idea of gandalf in a little bungalow near south end picking up a phone to a police officer who tells him that frodo <laughs> has been arrested in a, a flagrante um with a with a, with with a person of, of consensual age um near some kind of water sports center frodo with a dildo and a hobo by a lido it just tickles me that's all no <laughs> offense is meant yes, not even as not even as Frodo perhaps tickled the hobo but I believe that that case has yet to be seen so we'll 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 refrain from commenting on it okay so anyway fantasy eight so the plan is we first of all we're gonna have world famous oarsmen and women fighting it out to get into the boat 
with characters drawn from fantasy fiction. The rules are, we're going to go down each seat, nominate the best candidates for the job, and let them fight it out. Um, the world-famous oarsmen can seat race if they want, but they should be aware that the other candidates will have swords, axes, blunt force trauma, and if you're Frodo, a magical ring, which, you know, maybe the ho- hobo put something <laughs> in the magical ring. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Is he, is he, you is he brought it up. You brought it up. I'm sorry. You, you, you started the whole thing. Now, sorry. I'm really sorry. He's, so he's, he's fingering his ring, is he? <laughs> I don't know. Okay, we're going to have to pick a river to race on. And so what are the candidates for the course? Okay, so we have the rules. We have the ground rules. We've had me wildly digressing into potentially sexually libelous um, fictional uh, scenarios. The candidates for the river on which our eight will row are the Anduin, which runs through Middle Earth, the River Styx, which is the, uh, in the Grecian underworld, and the rivers of the realm of Zabala, the Mexican underworld, and the Thames, which runs through Middle England. Uh, we also have the Charles River, Martindale Pond and St. Catharines, Ontario, and the River Severn through Ironbridge. Um, these are fantasy rivers for many rows who dream of one last stand far more glorious than Sydney. Now, of course, we're ruling out the truly the most fantastical, the most unlikely, the most magical and unbelievable of all these rowing waters, the true father Christmas of row, that thing we love to talk about endlessly and pretend it's real to children, but we all know is in fact an unreal prospect, which is basically a 2K rowing lake anywhere near Cambridge. Um, so It was just too fantastical. It was too far in the realms of fantasy. We couldn't possibly drag it back towards the real world. That, that will never happen in, in our lifetimes or the lifetimes of our children, our children's children or our children's children's children. That's a lot of children's children's children. That is a lot of children. Should, should we start with the sticks? I quite like the idea of the sticks. I like the idea of rowers competing on a river that separates the land of the living from the land of the dead. A foul and corrupted waterway where a boat helmed by Acheron endlessly ferries souls to the netherworld in an atmosphere of foul miasmas and death. Now, as an Agecroft rower, I have to say that <laughs> this sounds remarkably like the Irwell that we trained on. Um, when you add in the fact that the boat is made of the toenails of dead men and, and our, our eight was made of remarkably similar material, it's basically bringing it all back home to me. Um, and let's be blunt, everyone. We're talking about James Cracknell territory here. This is the sort of landscape that he was made for post-Athens. All this needs is the river sticks, the land of the dead, a foul and stinking river, a boat made of dead toenails, and we are in James Cracknell territory. All we need is a production company, him falling out of a cryo chamber yet again, a Ben Fogel character doing something soppy with Labradors, and this is a TV miniseries waiting to be made with a tie-in book just in time for Christmas. You can hear the voiceover even as you conjure up the mental image. The river Styx winds through the Grecian netherworld. It is the ultimate test for the ultimate oarsman. James Cracknell, one of Britain's most successful Olympians, has two Olympic gold medals and incredible hair. But will he survive this? Yes, um, I, let's face it, he probably wouldn't. Something's got to get him in the end. But, okay, we've talked about the positives of the sticks, but the cons are, okay, first of all, given the state of Sir Steve's Road Gary's health, even when he was rowing, 
how would his diabetes and colitis cope with the foul miasmas and corrupted waterways of the underworld? Okay. Now, this could just mean we get rid of the old buffer and swap in Ed Cood, who'd still probably be pulling hard in the last 100 meters. But if there are any Italians listening, none were harmed in the making of this podcast. But also, I think, you know, we want a genuinely great race. And I think, frankly, spectators would be a little bit difficult to come by and possibly less than interesting if they were there. The atmosphere would be, I should put this a bit dead. The atmosphere would probably be worse than Head of the Neen in February. And uh, who hasn't raced down that particular bit of blasted heathland, um, essentially rowing down an irrigation ditch for five kilometers and you know, desperately looking for some landmark to push off. Legs for 10 off the mildly curious cow, anyone? Um, the river sticks is basically the Neen, but with fewer bridges and a bit more despair. And um, if anyone from Peterborough is listening and finds this deeply offensive, we love your regatta. We just hate your head race. Just to say that uh, with with Sir Steve, because obviously we, we'd like to consider him as a, as a candidate for our, our boat, with the diabetes, as long as the foul miasmas weren't made of glucose or chocolate, he'd probably be okay, I, I would think. But I mean, can you imagine if we took Sir Steve down to the underworld for a race and he had... He started off with the diabetes and the colitis, and he came back with diabetes, colitis, and asthma. We've been in a lot of trouble with Mrs. Redgrave. Well, yes. I mean, he is. He has reached national national treasure status, and if we killed him off, then it, it, the blame would probably fall quite heavily on us, I would think. Yeah. So, yes, the next candidate, then. Um, I, I also have a personal pull towards the Mexican underworld of Zabala. It's heavily staffed with demons with names like Flying Scab and Stabbing Demon. Ben Charles, whilst trying to sit the boat, that, that kind of like jabbing feeling in the small of your back with the handle of the oar. Um, he only did that to you, you know, for six months. It was hardly like it was a regular thing. <laughs> never have let him run it through. The thing about the Mexican underworld of Zabala, no Bens were harmed in the, in the making of this podcast either. My bloody back was. <laughs> To reach the Mexican underworld, you have to cross a river filled with scorpions, a river filled with blood, and a river filled with pus. So basically, what we're giving our crew is the chance to race at your basic Gloucester Bristol Ross pot hunting weekend with added jeopardy. Well, yeah, and, and also there are the six houses of trial um, for the masochistic cracknel type elements, where you have to pass through houses filled with flesh eating bats a razor house full of unpredictable slashing rays and a jaguar house probably filled with the kind of cars you find in the Henley car park, I, I'm guessing. There's probably cars that aren't being used in the Henley car park anymore. That's what a jaguar house sounds like to me as well. Yeah. I, w- I would think no, so. No, that, that, wait, sorry, that'd be the Porsche house, wouldn't it? The Porsche house. Maybe the, the Porsche house is just after the jaguar house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mm. I'm going to have to look this up because if there's a Porsche house and a Jaguar house, there must be a Bentley house. But I, d- I don't remember when I was researching this that that coming up in, in Mexican mythology and fantasy. I, I must have missed it. I'm, I'm obviously... It has to be said, there is a certain resonance with most rowers being forced to cross through the Henley car park full of cars more expensive than their houses. 
and you know just generally feeling quite bad about yourself really until of course you turn about by you know 40 or 50 and you pick up a bit of cash and you know you go when back there and, and put the 20 somethings through you know the misery that all 20 somethings deserve because they've got massive aerobic capacities indestructible backs and so they deserve to start kind of like feel bad that they don't own a jaguar yes and then when when you park your car at 50 that's worth more than their house and they and they walk their vespoli through it at waste deliberately so they essentially <laughs> key every car in the henley car park just to prove a point that money can't buy you the spunk and arrogance of youth I think that both sides come out winners morally and ethically in that situation. Yeah, um, winners. Winners, definitely. Both of them. Definitely winners. Um, next candidate. I would suggest Middle Earth's Anduin. I think this is a very likely candidate. Um, and I admit that that is only until you actually start looking at it from practical sense. Now, it's very long. It's very majestic. It is surrounded by stunning series, scenery that looks curiously like New Zealand. And I feel this could be a perfect setting for a 1500 mile head race while pursued by flesh-eating orcs. However, as any halfway competent geologist will tell you, and I am not a halfway competent geologist, but I have checked with several, Tolkien's maps and rivers, the maps that launched a thousand bad maps and a thousand other bad fantasy novels and films, are completely unrealistic and defy all the known laws of physics. Essentially, to put it in a nutshell, water flows downhill. We have to remember that realism is very important in heroic fantasy and the Anduin just couldn't possibly exist. And if you don't believe me, Google the Anduin on the web and find out just how much it really can't exist. People have actually written doctoral theses on this. That's theses, that's theses. So the Anduin, hmm. Theses, theses, definitely theses. It's a tricky one. So the, the, the Anduin looks good, but it's not practical because it doesn't exist. Yeah, uh, I, I think, to be honest, sort of nerd points for pointing out, this says a lot about Tolkien. He was version 0.0 of heroic fantasy. He, he created the mould from which others made slightly better products, I think. Um, I think the only real advantage of the Anduin, that if we ever make this kind of fantasy rowing idea, it's the greatest ever rowing movie that doesn't make Dan Topolsky any richer. We get to film it in New Zealand, and I've always wanted to visit. I believe it's the law that if you do anything with Tolkien, you do it in New Zealand. That's fair enough. I, I, I think I think as a state probably insists on that. In which case, my the other alternative that I have, and I, I, I quite like this one because I, I, I am somewhat this way inclined anyway, is the Thames, which when you think about it is a, is a real river flowing from the Cotswolds down through the Thames Valley to London, out through Tower Bridge and thence to the sea. But it is also the original river of fantasy. It is the river of Peter Pan, the classic golden age fantasy text. It is Peter and Wendy and the Lost Boys navigating by it in the moonlight. It's the river that River Thames that inspires the creation of Alice in Wonderland. Charlie Dodson, also known as Lewis C., going up river and shoving Alice Little down a rabbit hole. It is also the river of Dickens and Monmouth. It is the shining thread of English history that connects us still to the Romans arriving and seeing on a bar only a barbarian land. It is also the river, lest we not forget, of the wind in the willows, a fantasy text that introduced the idea of brotherly platonic male love among animals that in real life would have eaten each other. Moly and Ratty would have been eaten by Badger and everybody would have eaten Toad. 
That aside, though, the wind and the willows crucially took the reality of the Thames and made it an idea, creating it so magically on the page alongside the iconic drawings that even now it remains what we think of when we think of the River Thames. It does not matter that even as Graham wrote, he was fueled by years, trapped in a bank in Threadneedle Street, and his vision of the Thames was out of date. It was from his boyhood spent around Cookham and Marlow. The Wind and the Willows took the Thames and framed it forever, selling it as an idealised image of England to the rest of the world that we still feel resonates today. It sells it as the river for rowers on which Ratty and Mole will forever be messing about on in boats. It is the river that every rower worth their salt spends the bulk of their season grafting like a navvy just so they can line up on the first morning of Henley Regatta on Wednesday. It is the river of rowing fantasy. It is. Um, we also, we like the idea of uh, Conan trying to get into stewards without checking his sword. Uh, we, we, we know there are no rules about swords. The loincloth might be a problem because it doesn't cover his knees. Given that we're talking about real rivers that are also fantasy rivers, let's talk about the fantasies of rowing that people have. And, and the big one, I think, that everybody seems to want to row, but most people haven't, is the head of the Charles. Strictly speaking, though, I, I, I'm not too keen on the head of the Charles. First of all, it's a head race, which are not my favourite races. It's also going to be cold. It's in Boston, the first snows of winter. No, the place I want to go is Royal Canadian Henley Regatta. This is very much my ultimate bucket list race. Martindale Pond, sorry, on the shores of St. Catharines in Ontario, where you have six lanes of open water. Now, I'll tell you about a little plan I hatched with uh, my former doubles partner, James Knight, um, and we were going to both accidentally arrange a family holiday to St. Catharines at the same time as the regatta was on, and we're just going to like bump into each other accidentally whilst the regatta was on. And it's like, oh, well, as we're here, and we just happen to have an entry into Masters B doubles, but divorce lawyers are, we are reliably informed, expensive. So we, are, we aren't gonna do that. The other, the other great idea of mine is a summer season on the seven and the Avon. So no Peterborough, no uh, Henley Town and Visitors, no Henley Masters. We're talking about Cheapsbury, Hughley, Ironbridge Gorge, Shrewsbury, and finishing in Gloss and Ross together, and possibly Stratford upon Avon for a mixed quad. All about blue sky, brown water, green leaves on the trees on the riverbank in some of the most glorious scenery in England. And that, I think, that is kind of fantasy rowing for me in that there is an element of realism. There are rivers out there that nearly every rower wants to row on, but quite possibly will never get the opportunity to do so. That is very true, which is why we've included them. Uh, I, but after we wrote the length of the Thames, uh, the length of, of the Seven was the next on the list because it is simply stunning. And Lewin makes a, a, an excellent point, which is, every rower has a fantasy bucket list of events and rivers that he would like to tick off. If we're lucky, we get to tick some of them off. And obviously Loon and I have, having been to Henley and, and, and rode on the Thames and that kind of thing. But it really is. This is why we're doing this. It is the idea of rowing, is a fa rowing has a fantastical element. It has a quest element. 
and these rivers are sterling candidates. These real fancy rivers are sterling candidates. But I believe, Lewin, you have one left field candidate that you would like to float past us. Well, I do. And I believe it's the one that we're both going to agree with because we are both massive Terry Pratchett fans. And so I do, of course, refer to the Ank, the muddiest, most fertile, most grippy river in all of modern fantasy fiction. Not only is it a concept of a river, it is used as a source of life-giving sustenance. It's a trading artery to a continent. It is a river of muddy and slightly smelly dreams and a frequent sewer and sometime grave. It was actually thought up by a man with a geography A-level. So first of all, it flows downhill. It, ha- it flows from the foothills of the Ramtop Mountains through the eternally fertile Stow Plains and on further to the gateway of the Circle Sea, the proud Ankh Morpork, city of 100,000 souls and nearly a million people. So remarkably similar to Leeds in that respect then. Almost identical, apart from the fact that Leeds looks nicer. No way, it's the other way around. It really doesn't. <laughs> Leeds looks terrible. Harsh. Sorry, I'm, it, no, it's a not. well-known fact that I'm biased against Leeds. So, Are you biased against Leeds because of your well-known antipathy towards all things Northern, including your co-presenter? No, no. Um, Just say yes, it'll be faster. Essentially, since I was bitten by someone in Leeds as a young man, basically. The, the Ankh River running through Ankh Moorpork is a far better destination for our nascent fantasy rowing team. Given that not only is the city home to the Unseen University, which, whilst not actually necessary for the presence of a rowing club, always helps. Um, and more importantly, thanks to the demands of close to two generations of Pratchett fans, those wise, kind, decent, forthright, intelligent, good-looking, well-built people who love Terry Pratchett. Actual definitive maps of the Ankh as it runs through Mortport actually exist. As soon as you look at them, you realise it would be a belter of a row, a four and a half mile thrash through that city. It would be the bridges of Bedford Head with the bends of the head of the Charles. And remember, this autumn, with the head of the Charles being cancelled, all rivers are the Charles River. Moments of silence. And so, yes, it would be a true waterman's course. It would be a Cox's course. It's not just about who can pull the hardest. It's about who can choose the best line in between the corpses and the piles of the bridges. Um, And you would, of course, be traveling through one of the best loves, best maps, and most historically relevant, entirely made up cities in all of human literature. That is very, very cogently argued. The only point that I would add to it is given the, the average Ankh Morporkian's uh, ability to, t- to turn anything into a piece of street theatre, it would be remarkably well attended. The only issue might be that the, our rowers might go to actually start their race and find that their riggers, oars and boat had been stolen at some point. But I'm sure that Commander Vimes would... Um, would would come along and sort it out. Even though I have a strong pull towards the Thames as as a magical fantasy river in so many respects, I think it has to be the Ankh. Yeah, and and let's face it, the uh, danger of um, crime against property never stopped Hcroft. Um, 
As a, as a digression, do you do you have a favourite Discworld novel? Favourite Discworld. Um, I will go with either Guards, Guards or Reaper Man. In, for, for general chuckles and hilarity, it was always Guards, Guards, um, and sort of like the introduction of Sam Vimes and Corporal Carrot, who were arguably the first heroes and sort of unalloyed, unarguable heroes that Terry Pratchett wrote. But also, I, I, I think I always come back to the book Reaper Man, which contains within it the single greatest plea for kindness and mercy to the foibles and frailties of the human condition. Um, yes, Reaper Man is very poignant and very powerful, and God's Guards is, is a masterpiece. I have a soft spot for pyramids because it was it was it was a birthday present. It was my when I was a, a teen. It was the first hardcover Pratchett that I ever got, and I, I remember my birthday always coincided with the start of the summer holidays because I'm a July baby. And I, I woke up on the Saturday morning of my birthday to find a card, a cake, and a new Terry Pratchett and six glorious weeks stretching out ahead of me. Weird Sisters and Mort and Equal Rights, I think that is a, a wonderful sequence of, of, of writing, let alone fantasy writing. But yes, I'd, I'd go with anything with Sam Vines and Carrot in is pretty much going to get my vote. Away, away from fantasy nerdishness, back to boats, and we Indeed. need to choose our crew. We need to choose our crew. We need to form our crew from the best and brightest from British rowing, which will basically be the same people that we always pick on. And the meanest, nastiest, and ugliest from the world of fantasy. So the crew, we are going to go down from stroke to bow. We're going to nominate and argue for the candidates. If you hear silence, it's because Lewin and I, even though we live in separate parts of the country, have come to blows over things and they've been edited out. So stroke. Some would say this is the most important seat in the boat. As a seven man, I would say that's absolute bollocks. However, <laughs> stroke. Andy Trick Hodge. Matthew Pinsent, slaying the Avenger. Okay, so, so this is going to be particularly enjoyable because we've wanted to put Andy Trigg's up against Pinson ever since we started this. And we've got a mad berserker Celtic Axeman in there. No, James, we're not talking about you. <laughs> so for me, Pinsent, again, he has this slightly, you know, Pete Reed-esque clean-cut, roundhead image. And I think he'd be a little bit too self-absorbed. The crew to unite behind, you know, a whole eight. He's a bit too indolent. He wouldn't necessarily fight back when the orcs attack. That being said, no orc with any sense of self-preservation would actually attack him. Matthew would probably wait for the war to run on for three years, 364 days, then kind of roll his eyes, put his copy of the Telegraph down, pick up his battle axe, and slaughter the last remaining army of orcs in Middle England from which Reading would never actually recover. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, I'm just stunned at the idea that, that there are orcs in Reading, but having rode through it, yes, that's a that's a fair shout. And I'm, I'm actually, I find it hard to believe that Matthew Pinsent reads The Telegraph looking at his Twitter feed. I, I totally had him down as a Guardian man. However, um, um, so, so Matthew Pinsent may be too self-absorbed for the crew to unite behind. He does rouse himself when, when, when there is enough gold on the line. What about Slane or Slanier or Slahania or however you're currently pronouncing it? I did, I did look this up and it, I don't know, maybe just someone is trolling on Twitter with various accents on there, but Slane the Barbarian, a man given to fits of rage, the use of sexually suggestive threats concerning axes, 
I'm not entirely sure it, that he actually fits with the ethos of rowing, despite his berserker strength and tolerance of pain. Um, maybe he'd be better in a kayak. So I think we're left with the golden god that is Andy Trigshog. I know this is fantasy rowing, but the, the most fluid and glorious stroke cider we've ever had, apart from James Cracknell, according to James Cracknell. Not only does ATH have the hair for fantasy rowing, uh, we believe that his strawberry blondness, he carries the background necessary to make this a truly diverse and representative fantasy rowing gate. Just remember, every boat needs a ginger. ATH, you're in. I can't really argue with that because I, I think he's a wonderful stroke and seems like an all-round decent human being. And frankly, if they're going to get through Ankh-Morpork, Port, they're going to need someone like that. Which brings us to the seven seats. Now, our current candidates for this are um, Sir Stephen of Redgrave, Sir Timothy of Foster, and Sir Bard the Bowman. Now, I, I like the idea of Steve Redgrave in this book largely because, as we often point out, we feel that he was not born in Marlow, but he was hewn from granite by Viking stonemasons and set loose upon the earth to punish it for its sins. The, the trouble that we have with fitting him into this boat is I feel that he could be something of a Boromir character driven on by his own personal quest for glory. I mean, the five goals, the five Olympic goals are essentially the story of the gold of the ring luring Boromir into incautiousness. We're looking at a man who could have featured in the epic sagas of old. And as we've said, and we're going to repeat it again, carved from stone by Viking stonemasons, the temptations of the fantasy world, Frodo's ring, would just be too much for him. It's gold, remember, the thing that drove him to destroy his body and his sanity for 20 plus years. The only way that Redgrave gets in this boat is so that we can hear him say at some point after the race is over, the orcs were never coming back at us. Never. When did he know that you had it once, Sir Steve? 250 gone. Nobody rose through us. No one. Not even the forces of Mordor themselves. But you still had over four and a half miles to go. Yes, we had an extra gear if we needed it. So I disagree. So, so did Tim Foster in his own book. But, you know, I, I see Sir Steve Redgrave not so much as a Boromir, but more of an Alexander, uh, a conqueror looking to create a nation worthy of him, seeking one more battle, one more tribe defeat, essentially conquering all of Australia in Sydney, then weeping because there were no more Australians to conquer. And truly, because Britain, as much as he loved it, would never be great enough for his own legacy. I, th I think we just know Steve Redgrave too well. And we've both read his book, and we now just find him a bit boring. Well, the book is certainly a cure for insomnia, if any of our listeners have it at any point. Uh, just allow it to dissolve slowly under the tongue. <laughs> and an epic saga that should have set the rowing world alight will see you nodding off to get your eight hours before work tomorrow. Indeed. Well, that's Steve not coming on either. I, I think what you're basically saying is that Sir Steve Redgrave is something of an Alexander. He's, a, he's an Alexander the Great. And if we remember the famous quotation, if you're an Iron Maiden fan, on the um, Somewhere in Time album, the song Alexander the Great starts with Alexander's father saying this to him, my son, ask for thyself another kingdom, for that which I leave is too small for thee. And if we're putting Steve in this frame, what we essentially have is Steve's dad at some point in, in Marlowe going, son, 
become a rower because I have a building business, but frankly, you're cack-handed and you don't know one end of a spirit level from the other. It's pretty much the same thing, just not said in it to heroic couplets. So yes, it's a tricky seat. As everybody knows, it's the most important seat in the boat. Getting the right man there is imperative. I feel that Tim Foster, and I'm feeling this very strongly as one of nature's seven men or three men, could be our man. This is my position. Seven or three is where I like to row. It's where I wanted to row, apart from one horrific outing at bow and one brutally lovely outing at five at head of the river race. <laughs> I remember it well. <laughs> you remember it well. Foster, for me, is the man who welded the Sydney Four together. He's beautifully technical. He's more powerful than people think. He's fiercely committed. And if he grows the ponytail back... He he's he's made for fantasy. He, ha- he has he has the he has the hair for for heroic fantasy. It absolutely does. But we you'd always be worried about him getting drunk and sustaining a, a serious injury whilst singing dancing in the prancing pony in Brie. Yeah, one of uh, Middle Earth's natural bards, I feel. He's one of Middle Earth's natural bards in the sense that he'll sing a lot when he's drunk or in the sense of Bard the Bowman in The Hobbit, which as a sidebar, has anybody, and I, I realise we're losing we're losing listeners faster than Boris Johnson is losing his grip upon the coronavirus. Did anyone ever read or watch The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit and wonder at the sheer proliferation of magical weapons that litter Middle Earth? You literally can't go into the garden with a cup of tea and a slice of cake without falling over a magical ring or a sword that was forged by elves a billion years ago that kills dragons or a magical staff that shoots fire and baboons on his sheet of flame across the room at nine o'clock nightly the requirement for realism in heroic fantasy sometimes tolkien jumped that shark He'd, he he seemed to have spent his entire life jumping sharks, which as an Oxford Don begs the question, <laughs> why would you want to send your offspring to, to Oxford if they're going to be taught by people who churn out this stuff? I mean, in The Hobbit, and I appreciate this is me on my hobby horse somewhat, but in The Hobbit, there is a black arrow. It is the only arrow in Middle-earth that apparently can... It's the only arrow in Middle-earth that can kill the dragon. It's a black arrow. I mean... <sighs> You'd lose it in the dark. You'd lose it in the dark. You wouldn't be able to find it. Apparently, if you watch the film, Bard can only shoot it at Smoke if he uses his son as a rest and fires it off his shoulder, which is some kind of William Tell weirdness. But it's just so... Black Arrow, I have saved thee to last. Thou hast never failed me. When that little bastard next door came scrumping my apples, you flew, oh, Black Arrow, 40 yards across the garden, and you plugged him straight in the backside. That will teach the little shit to take apples that don't belong to him. And yes, social services got involved, but they're busy. But it's just ridiculous. Has no one actually considered the health and safety implications of this? Hello, darling. How was school today? Oh, it was fine, Dad. We learned why the Anduin can't exist in geography because water only ever flows downhill. Oh, and I have to tell you, during PE, I fell over a magical sword. So it turns out I'm the one true heir to the throne of Gondor, and I have to go off a nursemaid a whining little shit around Middle Earth to a magical mountain so he can destroy a magical ring. Oh, that's nice, dear. Your mum's going to be really proud. We're having fish fingers for tea. Is that all right? Oh, where's, where's your sister? Oh... Sorry, Dad, did school not ring? She found a palantir in English lit. She's got to go and kill a dragon before tea time or the world's going to end. Anyway, 
Bard seems like a solid and dependable team player. If you're looking for a team that's up to a standard where you need to nail an arrow down the throat of a dragon at a pinch, if you can do that, you've got to say he's going to keep his length in the last 300 metres. Unlike Tim Poster. But... <laughs> Oh, sorry, but it just—it was all going wrong in Sydney. It's terrible. I can't believe in the in this in the space of one podcast, James Cracknell, <laughs> Steve Redgrave, Matthew Pinson, and Tim Foster will never come on. Well, I were... know, I know. I, 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 I reckon, I reckon Crackers and Foz can take a joke. Um, Not so sure the about the two, other two. No. no, it's just, it's just never going to happen. But anyway, so, who, who is our seven man, Lou? And after all of that, after, um, after me. I, I think we need, first of all, we, we've had one real rower, so let's have an actual fantasy character. Let's have Bard the Bowman. Bard the Bowman, Conqueror of Dragons, slots in at seven, which brings us to the sixth seat, which everybody who's ever rode at six will know is the most important seat in the boat. The two ponces at the sharp end are pretending they're doing everything. Six is where the meat wagon starts. It's where the work begins. Our short list at the moment is Beowulf, Steve Williams and Aragorn, son of Arathorn, son of Fred, grandson of Bob, uh, heir to the throne of Gondor, currently works in IT in Slough. And he's a runner. That's what he does. He runs around the place. Sometimes he rides a horse. And given that he's a runner, he's also a grumpy northerner. And I've got as many grumpy northerners as I need in my life right now. And seriously, did, did anybody actually sort of ever read Lord of the Rings and voices Aragorn with like a soft Hertfordshire accent. It, no, he's northern, he's grumpy. And so he just tries to run it off. And as we all know, grumpy northerners who run a lot, they tend to be a bit too skinny for this rowing malarkey and they have very disappointing ergs. So... <laughs> <laughs> you already know one northern, that's me and my oh my that's it. No grumpy running triathloning northerners before and it's just like you you do you sit there and you just go it's like oh right, yeah, it's like 2K test day and just this guy's he's gonna be great for seven minutes and fifteen seconds later and you're just thinking, well, that was that was something, wasn't it? You're saying that Aragorn, son of Arathorn, grandson of Fred heir to the throne of Gondor, currently works in IT in Slough, would not be able to pull the skin off the rice pudding. More than that, you're saying that Aragorn, etc., 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 son of Bob, shouldn't be in the boat because he's essentially a triathlete. And yeah. they should... I can't argue with the logic. I, honestly, you, you put those Brownlee boys on the ergo, they, they wouldn't break 650. Bet you anything. Okay. What about Beowulf then? He has previous experience of boats? He does. And depending on the interpretation of whichever text you're reading, he might have been able to turn into the wolf. He could probably kill monsters. He could probably kill their mothers. And he could also kill serpents. So Thames tradesmen have signed him up because, you know, the tradesman serpent. Now, you know, it's very much a sea serpent, kill serpent thing. Go back in time, make love to serpent's mother, realise that you're the father of serpent and that Viking storytellers were seriously on the piss. Just going to show that the old works of fantasy weren't the best. Beowulf, the entire saga is madness. Do you know why Viking sagas and, 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 and that kind of thing were, were so trippy? It's because 
they used to brew beer and mead using psychedelic mushrooms. And the church in the 13th and 14th century stopped them doing it because they, they wanted to be the gatekeepers to the universe, to God. So you, if you go back and look through um, the right charters and laws being passed around that time, uh, you can see them passing ordinances. So you could no longer use psilocybin mushrooms um, or magic mushrooms to brew your beer and mead with. So the Vikings told amazing stories because beer didn't just get you pissed. It blew your skull open and let the universe in. That's why Beowulf is so weird. Not the character, although he is, but the story. It's, it's, it's got Vikings in, which was a term used to mean landless men. It has odd monsters with weird Oedipal mother figures who transformed and transfigured in. It had weird sexual relations. It had gold. It had all of those kind of things. Axes. Don't forget the axes. Very it, important it, in fantasy fiction. It has actors. I mean, he, he he's he's a bit rough around the edges, old, old Beowulf. But I I mean, are there any cons to why he couldn't slot in at six? Well, he is liable to get drunk, go berserk, and threaten to ra- wrestle James Cracknell. But then we both rode with Sean, and we only regretted it the evening after the race. Ah, uh, Sean, Sean, our Welsh god, our Welsh six foot five, a polite, well mannered Welsh Grendel that you could take home to meet your mum, and he would be polite and charming. But if you took him to Henley Royal Regatta, you would last see him swimming naked off Temple Island, a kinder, nicer, more wonderful man you've yet to meet unless you're racing him or standing between him, his flashing Playboy bunny ears, his Speedos, his cocoa butter, his Albus oil, and a dance floor. Last seen as captain of Agecroft men. What a guy. <laughs> Next, um, we've got to have, we've got to mention this guy, Steve Williams. He is the classic ranger persona, a softly spoken man of action. Um, he has not only conquered Olympian Athens and mystic Beijing, uh, the land of the two-jaw drug testing policy, which was, as we've said, only fair. Um, but the tallest mountains and the North Pole as well. Steve Williams is a character from a fantasy novel with a surprisingly ordinary name, and he is one of the greatest oarsmen this country has ever produced. Does he get your vote, Aaron? I would have to say, because he is the quiet man of British rowing, he doesn't get as much respect as he deserves. For my money, even though I I have a strong pull towards Beowulf, just because I want to try some of what he was drinking, Steve Williams gets my vote. Right, so we must move on to five. Who are the candidates? The candidates are Aslan, the lion from The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, or if you say it very quickly, The Lying Bitch in the Wardrobe, um, Conan the Barbarian, Cohen the Barbarian, if we're going to be in the Pratchett universe, James Cracknell, a man who was born a thousand years too late and would have discovered America if Leif Erikson hadn't got there first, if he'd been born at the right time. And Pete Reed, the mighty, the magnificent, the noble, because every fantasy needs a noble character in it. We're also going to include the librarian from the Unseen University, because we've often joked on this podcast that modern rows are basically huge beasts with the wingspan of a mature orangutan. And he, and I think it's a he, is almost certainly one. He's, he's, that, he's, he's got the cheek pouches. Definitely. He's got the cheek pouches. He's okay. Cheek pouches. Okay. Um, so what do, what do we have here with? Um... Well, first of all, I'm I'm going to strike one of those characters from the list. Conan the Barbarians. We have two things: issues with performance enhancing drugs in the past. There 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 is a very very suspicious muscularity there that I don't think we can really just overlook. 
Okay. Um, and also quite possibly a limited cardio capacity. Great for 500 meters, like certain <laughs> Australians we could mention by name, but won't because we feel they have lawyers. And, you know, I, we think he's great for the decapitation of snake gods. But, you know, if we're going for the full four and a half miles through Ankh-Morpork, we're not sure he's got the stamina. And he's on the juice. Maybe we should have Monkey, the Chinese demigod, because we know he'd be perfectly clean, like all the athletes from the People's Republic of China. There's nothing to worry about with an athlete from the People's Republic of China. I, 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 feel, a, I feel there should be a movie about it, something perhaps entitled Crouching Rower Hidden Drug Test, perhaps. Or, or, or two-door picture policy. A two-door policy, yes. Uh, um, but yes, Conan, as Arnold portrays him, let's be honest, he's on the juice. He's going to fail the test at the end of the course. He's, he certainly is, which is a shame because I would like to hear him utter his immortal dialogue about that is Krom strong on his mountain. I can't do the accent because I haven't taken that much testosterone, which brings us to Aslan. Now, Aslan the Lion, from the magician's nephew, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where Prince Caspian... Prince Caspian brings his mightiness forth. Oh, Prince Caspian's a name to conjure with. Prince Caspian, oh, Prince Caspian. Narnia is nothing to be scared of. Prince Caspian, oh, oh, Prince Caspian. Narnia is nothing to be scared of. Now, obviously, you're only going to get that reference if you're ancient like Loon and I are. And you know who Adam and his aunts were. And you know the song in question but Aslan what a great addition to the boat they say in the book that Aslan is on the move you'll notice they don't say that Aslan is on the dole or Aslan is on the piss or Aslan has fallen on hard times and is now on the game Aslan is not selling his mane on street corners to strangers for cash he's shacked up with Mr Tumnus in a totally representative and inclusive relationship that will make the Daily Mail froth at the mouth, an LGBT relationship between a kiddie-snatching fawn called Mr. Tumnus and a magical lion who's a symbol for Christianity in the mind of C.S. Lewis. You can hear and read and see the headline now. Barmy and Narnian, sicko fawn and tryst with the king of the jungle and symbol of Oxford Don's Christian fetish, worship devil spawn, immigrants have stolen our love rats exclusive by Panama hats on page three. It practically writes itself, but the question is, Lewin, can he move a boat? Technically, I'm going to say no. He's a lion. He lacks opposable thumbs, which will make squaring, feathering, and hand heights a bit of an issue because he'll think of it as poor heights. There's a reason why we don't call them poor heights unless, of course, Sean is rowing. But he's a big unit, and you need big units in your meat wagon. They say Aslan is on the move, Lewin. Can he move the boat? I think he can move the boat. Um, but fundamentally, given the alternative is James Cracknell. I think Aslan has got more sensible and practical hair. From my point of view, he's in. Pete Reed. Now, Pete Reed, basically because he's Pete Reed, greatest bowsider of all time, apart from, of course, James Cracknell, according to James Cracknell. Um, we should be in the boat, but fundamentally, he's got this certain patriotic, roundhead, clean-cut persona that just doesn't really have the dramatis for all this kind of fantasy rowing stuff. I can't quite see him cleaving orcs in twain with a rowing oar. So I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna go with Aslan. 
the the other point about Pete Reed, who is who is noble to his very core, is if we are rowing this on the anchor, we have Captain Carrot. We have a we have a clean cut paragon of virtue already in the story. So I think Pete Pete might have to sit this one out, even though we have nothing but respect for him and Andy Trigg Hodge. And I like the idea of having a lion in the five seat. It just appeals to me. It means that that calls about being lion-hearted in the middle third will, will, will have more appeal. And I just like the image. I just like the image. Aslan is our five man or our five lion. Indeed. So, number four. Who are the characters? Uh, the candidates for the four seat. The four seat, obviously, um, for people who wrote for, is the most important seat at the boat. It is the, the, it's the seat that sets the rhythm for stroke pair. They pick it up magically like spiders sensing vibrations in their web down the silk. They, they feel what four is doing and they naturally shift to accommodate his rhythm or her rhythm. We have Slain the Avenger. We have Ariel from The Little Mermaid because she can swim. And frankly, if Frodo by Sub Miracle gets in this boat, they'll all need to be able to swim. And we have Anna from Frozen. No, no, sorry, I'm going to stop you there. Okay. That is the wrong Anna. The only Anna we're having in this boat's four seat is Anna Williams. She is, fundamentally, let's face it, she is a fantasy character. She's not simply a human woman who happens to be growing. I believe she is a Valkyrie in disguise. She's just painted her wings so they blend in with the background. She has the superhuman size and strength. She has the blonde pigtails. And this is the fantasy mixed eight for her. I think she can back up Aslan in the five seat very, very well. Okay, you're, you're going with Anna Williams to back up Aslan in yep. the five seat because she is essentially a Valkyrie in disguise. Are you basically saying then that if, if I die with an oar in my hands, Anna Williams will carry me to rowing Valhalla, which is Henley in Regatta Week, where I will race, I will have hard racing every day with my friends against, against fierce competitors, and then we will, we will carouse into the night with trust fund heiresses at Mahiki's and then get up the next day and do it all over again. That, yeah, I mean, literally, that's, that's a brilliant idea that fundamentally Valhalla for rowers every single day is Friday at Henley. It's, it's an eternal Friday. It's a, yeah. The eternal Henley Friday is Valhalla for rowers, isn't it? I'm, yeah, that's I it. Mean, that, I, that does come back to the thing that, you know, Henley, it's the mystic water. That's such a wonderful idea. Isn't it just, I'm, I'm going to start walking around with a full-length dryscacker just in case I cark it. And, and <laughs> just, I want to find out if this is true. It's going to make things like doing the shopping tricky. And there's going to be lots of Laurel and Hardy, me turning around, somebody ducking, me turning <laughs> the other way and, and me smacking them in the face. But if Anna Williams is going to take me to, to rowing Valhalla, which is, which is Henley on Friday, rowing with my friends against fierce competitors and then carousing all night and then getting up the next morning to do it again, I'm carrying that dry skacker. Do, 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 do you think that all you actually need is just a lapel pin from Rock the Boat Clothing? We need to tweet Anna Williams and check what the entry criteria is because a full-length dryscacker in everyday life is going to be is going to be tricky. But I don't want to miss out on Valhalla because I, because I went with the Eternal with, the, with Friday, the pin. Yeah. yeah, let's 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 follow this one up because I think at, at our age it's something we need to follow up. Fundamentally, every single Friday you'd beat Green Lake 
by three inches after coming back from a length and a half down only to party through the night with heiresses and mahikis every single day. Isn't it just perfect? Isn't yeah, it just perfect? We, yeah, that is the new that is the new mythos for rowing. That's that's you know, if we die here, take me to Henley Friday. Yeah. Valhalla. Can I just check? I mean, Anna's, Anna Williams is in because she, she is a superhuman in human form. But are we discounting slaying the, the, the Avenger Barbarian for the same reason as Conan? Basically, he's, he's great for 500 meters yelling, that is Crom strong on his mountain. Yonder is the castle of my father. Hold my beer. I'll be back. All of that stuff. And he's on the juice. Is that where we're going with this? He, he is suspiciously well-muscled. And yeah, I, I, I think he'd be a sprinter. Um, I, I, I think he'd be one of these guys who fundamentally could, could knock out on a bad day a 117.500, but would struggle to beat six minutes, 24. Okay. okay. Um, so, so Anna... Would be terrible, Anna, but you, you just, you wouldn't want to risk him having to pee in a cup. No. So, so Anna, Anna Williams is going to back Aslan up in the five seat and let's face exactly. it, he's, he's a lion who's never rode before. She's really, <laughs> she's really going to have to back him up. We're down to the three seats, Lewin. Okay. So the three seat, um, three, as we all know, thanks to Dinosaur is the magic number, but, um, it's also a tricky seat. It's an ejector seat. You know, the idea is you put the person in three, when you can't put them anywhere else in the boat, because that's where they, they'll uh, do the least damage. But the problem is that a good three man is the, he's the guy who links the meat wagon to the pernickety technical bastards in the bow. Again, it's about an eight being more than the sum of its parts. You actually do have to have, you can't have a bad three man if you're going to have a great eight. You have to have that, you know, this guy who is actually prepared to put the work in and transfer the movement down through the meat wagon and into the bowels, you've got to have a great rower there. So, you know, who, who, who are the candidates? Well, I wish you told me that before I put some of these candidates down because I have essentially picked any whiny little shit that you've ever wanted to punch in a fantasy novel or fantasy narrative. Did... did- did somebody? <laughs> did somebody say to Pol? To Pol- somebody, somebody, Sorry, top. top no, what? Did you? Did you just? Topolsky? Topolsky? No, no, no. Nobody's ever accused Dan Topolsky of writing a fantasy novel about what happened in the Oxford and Cambridge boat race. In the that was that novel was as I, as I understand it that fantasy novel was 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 almost certainly based on events that might have actually actually happened uh, it wasn't made up at all and I, I couldn't possibly comment <laughs> not having read it not having a libel lawyer present but um after you said all those wonderful things about a three man I basically put everybody that you don't want in your boat because we do <laughs> we do tend to label it the ejector seat so we've got Frodo with a hobo and a dildo by the Lido. We have Edmund from the Lying Bitch in the Wardrobe. We have Susan from the Lying Witch in the Wardrobe. We have Toad from the Wind in the Willows, who at least has form as a waterman, even though he then moved on from his, his waterman phase to become a caravaner and then to a motor vehicle wrecker. But basically, every whiny little shit you've ever wanted to punch in a fantasy novel. Let's take Frodo. And when I say let's take Frodo, I mean let's 
take Frodo to give him a bit of a kicking. Frodo is the sort of whiner that we all know from the boathouse. You know the one, Lou, and don't, you don't have to sigh and roll your eyes. I know that you think it was me back when we were rowing, but it's the one who doesn't get the 2K score that they boasted that they would because all of a sudden on the day they have a cold or they have a magical back injury. It's the one who expects you to carry them in, in the boat. I mean, just look at some of Frodo's dialogue. Oh, the ring is so heavy, Sam. It is so heavy. It weighs so much. My life is so hard. The ring is so heavy, Sam. It is so tough being a ring bearer. I feel the unbearable weight, Sam. I can't explain it to you, Sam, because you, Sam, are a stout yeoman. You are stout of heart and leg and thick of brain. And I'm in a feat overprivileged, middle-class, independently wealthy wet who had an easy ride through my life because my uncle once stole some gold off a dragon. You simply wouldn't understand the pain that I am in, Sam. Now, I'm not going to attempt Sam Anderson's accent from The Lord of the Rings because it was some kind of weird West Country, Welsh-Irish mashup. I'm going to treat him as someone brusque and northern. Really, really, Mr. Frodo, sir. A small piece of jewellery that you wear on your finger is heavy, is it? Listen, I've walked across Middle Earth carrying my pack, your pack, and essentially you without complaining against the small piece of jewellery that's bloody heavy, is it? I physically carried you up the stairs of Cyril Connolly, which is the equivalent of Terry O'Neill's Pyramids of Doom, without complaining. And you're telling me that a piece of jewellery is really sodding heavy with that superior you couldn't possibly understand, Stout Yeoman. Honestly, Mr. Frodo, sir, I could kill you now, take the ring, give it to Sauron, and no one would be any the wiser. I'd be back at home in the Shire with rosy cotton, drinking a pint and making babies before you know it. I could end you now, Mr. Frodo, sir, and no bugger would ever know. <laughs> Which is why Frodo should never be in your boat, and Sam should, because Sam is the real hero of the Lord of the Rings. All Frodo does is bitch and moan, and we've all met them in rowing, and we've all been them in, in the crew, and let's be honest, Aaron... I've been one in the crew on occasions too, but no Frodo in this boat. I'll take a Sam. I won't take a Frodo loon. Um, uh, yeah, so you see, the thing is, I spent, I think, more than the last four years arguing that lightweights should make way for women at the Olympics, and I'm not going to change now. So we did mention Anna earlier. Um, maybe Anna from Frozen? Oh, bold. Well, I suppose on the one hand, she would sacrifice herself for the cause. The, the danger is that she has a propensity for throwing herself away on unsuitable men. And if we ever got off the ankh and ended up anywhere near Henley in Regatta Week, she would be beating off unsuitable men with a shitty stick just to make it across the boat enclosures to launch. Indeed. I, you know, she was rather ginger, which always stands in her, her favour when we're picking rowers but i think we could go with a better fantasy ginger i do of course mean red sonia anna is basically a ditz with an actor banging out rising six in the first film she is notably a poor judge of character i don't even know what she did in the second film because i can't remember anything about there may have been trolls it, it wasn't as good the second film on the on her way to the start line, she'd end up making eyes at any passing tideway scummer not wearing a wedding ring. And now Red Sonia, she'd keep her eyes in the boat, unless of course the poor sat from Tideway looked twice, then he'd be in a skull on a stick before you know it. I think that this is something that we should actually point out here. You know, of recent years, there have been a lot of fantasy, female fantasy action, heroic, heroinistic characters out there. 
and not one of them looks like they've ever lifted he- anything heavier than a slim fast biscuit in their adult life. Bridget Nielsen, on the other hand, who played Red Sonia, was a big strong lass in the typical Scandinavian mould. And she looked like she could shift an oar. Gal Gadot, on the other hand, she needs an aluminium sword. So I think we've got our second ginger there. I think I think Red Sonia is 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 looking is looking like our second ginger and a, and a strong female representative. Are we saying when she we're saying she's a big strong lass that that she was on oral tyrannibal? Are we allowing characters? I mean, we're, we're not allowing characters who juice it, are we? But I, I I think she fell between. You know, she's European, but she's not East German, and yes, she's Scandinavian, but she's not. Icelandic in the modern CrossFit era. So she's probably clean. She's probably clean. My, my, my one concern is that she would have trouble tapping down. And, and I, I say that because obviously she'd have to, she, she would have to tap down around the, the massive endowment that, um, the massive endowment that she got when, when she divorced Slice Sloan and got a huge divorce settlement. But I, I'm sure, I'm sure that, I'm sure that some technician out there will, will have a way to, tap down around vast piles of money. So Red Sonia is most definitely in our boat. We're, we're coming to the end of this. We are. Seat number two. Who are, we, who, who are the candidates for seat number two? We have Vicky Thornley and we have Elsa from Frozen. Elsa, I, she basically throws her entire homeland, which isn't a really, it's not really a, a citizen-centric move if you happen to be queen of that said homeland. And then when she thawed it all out, Arundel was washed away in floods that made the tsunami in Japan look like a, a boating lake accident. But if you have no one who can sing in your boat, you have a boat with no natural rhythm. I mean, do we have anyone else who can sing? I mean, Aslan I can roar, but he can, I mean, I've heard him. He can't carry a tune in a bucket. For a lion, he's remarkably tone deaf. I don't know. I mean, but she is, she's up against Queen Victoria Thornley. She is the, the regent of Leander. She is Empress of Cavisham, seeker of a worthy crewmate, and at some point in the future, she will be mother of massive rowing babies. Her and Rick are going to be the family that has to dress their firstborn in custom clothes designed for really, really big babies. We thought about Merida from Brave because I like Merida because of the idea, you know, that she she didn't just want to be married off to the first Celtic prince that came and could fire an arrow in her general direction. But we're talking about Queen Victoria Thornley here. We're talking about someone who makes Amazonian women look positively pygmy-esque. She makes the two-seat, not, not the Queen Victoria who married Albert and said, we are not amused, although that probably wasn't her accent. I never got to meet her. Um, <laughs> Queen Victoria in the two-seat, which brings us to Bao. One is a fantasy character from our own rowing life, and one is a genuine fantasy character. We've picked Mark Hancock, who nobody else but us knows about, even though we talk about him a lot, who was hands down just the best rower that we ever rowed with, who always made any boat that we were in feel better. He's like a Swiss army knife among rowers. Put him anywhere in the boat and it just it just goes. And Mole, because Mole, he, he, he epitomizes our rowing journey. He lives underground. Obviously, I'm from the north. It's much the same thing. He struggles out into the light. He stumbles across the river. He comes onto the water rat. And the water rat, after half drowning him in the first chapter of the novel, teaches him to skull. The mole becomes a waterman. I have a soft spot for Mark Hancock, obviously. 
because I think he's a wonderful man. And I have a soft spot for the mole because it's the text that enshrines the ideas that we all have about the Thames, even when it's reality. And I've rode through Windsor is a lot more grubby than you would like. <laughs> Still think of it as this green and pleasant messing around in boats. I reckon you can probably handle a boat. Mark Hancock is a 10 millimeter spanner. You should always have one in your boat and it won't go as fast without it. I think that's it. You see, the thing is the, mole is, the mole is untested in battle. He messes around in boats. Mark Hancock. You could drop Mark Hancock into the middle of Middle Earth. You could drop him into the middle of Slain the Avengers universe. You could drop him in the middle of the Ankh, and he would get up without turning a hair, say how do, and just practically get on with making life better for himself and everybody around him. And he's a superb oarsman. And frankly, given the fact we have a live lion, a berserker, and some really bad hairdos in the boat. I just want Mark there to get them down the course. Yeah, someone's got to keep this boat in a straight line. And someone's got to like, set the example that it's less talk, more rowing. Mark Hancock in the eight seat. So there is our eight, which begs the question, Lewin, who is going to coach this eight? We have, we've thrown in a few candidates. We've got Gandalf in there. We've got Captain Who. We've put Dennis O'Neill in there, largely because he'll break our legs unless we include him at some point in this podcast. He should be allowed in, in Leander, absolutely. And we also, he should be allowed in Leander now that the bruises of the other party have gone down. We also have Granny Weatherwax from the, the Discworld universe I'm going to make an argument for Gandalf here um, because he's basically a, a coach. I mean, if you look at the Fellowship of the Ring, and let's be honest, we shouldn't look at it too closely because we're grown men. There are nine of them to match the nine riders. Take Gandalf out of the equation and what have you got? You've got an eight. Yes, it's an eight made up of short arses, a homicidal maniac in Boromir and a virtuous prig in Aragorn, but it's still an eight plus Gandalf. He's basically their coach. They even have a quest. We have the quest of getting to Henley at the end of every season. They have a quest of getting a whining little shit to a magical mountain so we can destroy a magical ring. It's the same thing. Some would argue the Fellowship had the easier job. The Fellowship never had to go to Runcorn in the rain. And if they did, I never saw them. But the Lord of the Rings is basically, as a narrative, a head race. They're trying to get across Middle-earth to their destination before orcs eat them. Now let's look at Gandalf's role in this. He's, he's there. He's there when there's food. He's there when there's wine. He's there when there's women and song. As soon as it gets tough, he's not there. He's basically a coach. Bilbo and the dwarves run into the twelves. Gandalf is nowhere to be seen. He tells Frodo that he has the one-two ring, leading Frodo to getting stabbed at Weathertop. Knife crime in Middle-earth. Another Daily Mail headline waiting to be written. All of those nonsensical phrases that he comes out with, speak, friend, and enter. You shall not pass. It's basic billy bullshit of bollocks of a coach who doesn't know what he's talking about. Hey, up, Frodo, control that sack of potatoes, lad. That's all over the place. You know that if this eight makes it to the Sunday of Henley, Gandalf will be there in his blazer, eating canapes and getting shit-faced on pims. He won't have done any of the real work, but he'll be there at the end for the glory. And that's my problem with Gandalf. He's a great figurehead. He talks a good game, but when the going gets tough, will he actually be there? Lewin, any thoughts? 
I, I can certainly say, so, you know, he's going to be up there on the Sunday of Royal Mount Doom rowing regatta, having just <laughs> been helicoptered in by a giant eagle to get his face in the winner's photos, even if he had nothing to do with coaching that particular crew. He'll just be <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we've, got, we've got some other people there. We've got Captain Hook. He's a natty dresser driven by inner demons and his crew are terrified of him. He's your basic old school coach. I like I like the idea of Captain Hook from 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 Peter Pan. I like the idea of the fact that his crew are literally terrified of him, which is basically means he he's Dennis O'Neill but dressed as a pirate, which is really tickles my imagination. I mean, we could we could have Ratty as coach. He's he's fussy. He's pedantic. He's constantly kind of chivying around the mole and and leading him by the hand. Uh, that's that's a that's a very overprotective sort of coach. No, no, I was, I was just thinking, based on some of the rowing coaches I've had, you know, you know, I would go for any of the great fantasy villains, you know, Saruman, um, the, the Dark One, the Prince of Darkness, the Father of Lies, the Dan Topolsky, any, any, of, these, any, any of these great natural coaches, uh, leaders of men, even. So I'm, I'm thinking, our shortlist is basically Gandalf, Captain Hook, Ratty from the Wind in the Willows. This is for the position of, of of head coach. Any of the Dark Lords of Fiction that we've met. So Voldemort's in there. Sauron is, is 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 in there. Saruman is in there. And I I like their potential. I mean, they motivated an entire flesh eating army to to go across Middle Earth. They're going to get this crew down the course pretty fast. As a left field choice, though. What about Granny Weatherwax? She's tough, she's indefatigable, she's pragmatic, and she takes no shit. That sounds like an ideal coach. She is a moral manipulator of men, which I think is what any great rowing coach needs to be. And I would say, looking back on my rowing career, the rowing coach that I look back on with the most fondness was a woman. So I'm going with Granny Weatherwax too. We, I think we've forgotten an important character. As everybody knows, an eight has nine crew members. Who is the ninth man or woman in the boat? The shouty little ball of fury driving the crew on, finding that 101st percent. That is a very good question. That is, that is a good question. We need, we need a determined, strong-minded, lightweight character. I'm going to come straight out and suggest that it's Tinkerbell from Peter Pan. She's a foul-mouthed little bugger, and she gets right up Peter's nose, and she takes no shit. And she can make the boat fly. And she can literally make the boat fly. It's the way forward. Our fantasy rowing eight will be coached by Granny Weatherwax. Our coxswain will be Tinkerbell from Peter Pan. You can disagree with us wildly because that is what you do. That is your right. You are rowers. That is what we do, which is why we did this. Before we go... Oh, do you, do you have a favourite work of fantasy? I think I'm going to say Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series, Ooh. even though I haven't finished it. Game of Thrones fans, beware! Robert Jordan died before finishing the end of the Wheel of Time series, and they had to hire in another author who I don't particularly like, Brandon Sanderson, to finish the whole thing off. Um, but I still absolutely love it. It's it's a brilliant series, and it kept me happy for many, many hours through my 20s. I can't believe that I finally found something where your stamina has failed, because it never, ever has in my, <laughs> in, in my recollection before. 
unbelievable after everything I've seen you go through, after all of the, the brutal sessions I've seen you, you power through, a book finally, finally made you cry, no more, no more. Wow, that's, that's powerful. Yeah, so that was it. And yourself, do you, do you have a particular favourite work? My, my favourite works of fantasy are Geoffrey Archer's approach to his biographical details and the British justice system. And we'll leave... <laughs> my word, that, there we go, as a controversial note to end on. And we shall leave it there. Would you like to, would you like to spin us out, Dr. Hines? I will. Stroke side holding, bow side out. Good night. Good night. <laughs>